Hey, AP Lit. Good evening. The time is 8.20 p.m. It is Monday evening, and I am going to discuss chapters 10, 11, and 12 on tonight's reading. So um, if you've already done your reading, this will probably help. And if you haven't done your reading yet, uh, that's okay. This might help prepare you for what you're going to read about. So let's get started. So we basically have three major Igbo traditions and practices that happen in um, 10, 11, and 12. And then on chapter 13, we're going to have a, a major advancement in the plot. So if you're sitting here wondering like, okay, any minute now, because um, these chapters don't particularly move us forward in terms of uh, the life of Okonkwo and his family. These chapters are really about introducing three important things that happen in the world of the Igbo people. So let's talk about what those customs are and then why we think that those are included in the way that they're included. Okay, so the first one, um, that's chapter 10 starts on page 89. We have this thing called the Agugu ceremony. And I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm just trying my best. So this is a ceremony where they sound the gongs and then these masked ancestors come out. And the way that Achebe says this is that it's, it's like really interesting how he does this. The people believe that the masked Okay, let me slow down a little bit. The audience believes that the the it's not just people wearing masks, but like the masked people are the ancestors. And I'm going to read two important parts. One is page from page from page 90 and it says, um, the Igugu house into which they emerge faced the forest away from the crowd who saw only the, its back with the many colored patterns drawings done by specially chosen women at regular intervals. These women never saw the inside of the hut. No woman ever did. They scrubbed and painted the outside walls under the supervision of men. If they imagined what was inside, they kept their imagination, imagination to themselves. No woman ever asked questions about the most powerful and the most secret cult of the clan. So these guys who wear these masks, they're understood to be ancestral spirits. Um, we have names for them like evil forest, but then, like, people kind of know that they're just regular guys from the clan wearing masks. So there's a quote on page 91 where it says, Okonkwo's wives, and perhaps other women as well, might have noticed that the second Agugu had this springy walk of Okonkwo. And they might also have noticed that Okonkwo was not among the titled men and elders who sat behind the row of Agugu. But if they thought these things, they kept them within themselves. So... The, the the clan, like people kind of know what's happening, but nobody says anything. That's kind of the best I can say. And then the type of ceremony that we have here is that members of the village bring their grievances to the Agugu, and then the Agugu deliver a ruling of some kind. And in the book, we have this idea of um, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The issue that's brought to the table is um, this woman, her family comes in and basically thinks that her husband is not, is, is, uh, uh, hurting her. Okay. And we'll get to that in a sec. Okay. So 
Each of the Naya and Agugu represented a village of the clan. Their leader was called Evil Forest. Smoke poured out of his head. The other, the nine villages of Umofia had grown out of the nine sons of the first clan. Evil Forest represented the village of Umueri, the children of, or the children of Iru, who was the eldest of the nine sons. So all of the spirits represent someone and they're what one thing that's really important to know is that they're very deeply respected and the masks that the men wear are sacred the masks are held in a sacred building that people are not allowed into and they only come out for the agugu ceremony so one thing i want you to think about now as you're listening to this is um as bizarre as this may seem and it is bizarre for a western reader to read this i just want you guys to consider oh excuse me in your own religions or any religion that you're even familiar with, you kind of want to enter into or, or con- begin to think about these sacred spaces and these sacred objects. So for example, um, I'm not Jewish, but I know that the Torah has some special properties. And if we were in class, you could tell me all about those special properties. Um, I think they're, so whatever, if you're Jewish, think about the special properties of the Torah. Cause I know I'm going to mess something up, but I know that it has these special qualities. It has to be handled in a very specific way. Um, it can only be touched, I think, by something specific. Um, the Torah is a big deal. They only take it out at certain times. And you want to think about like how everyone in the audience, everyone in the congregation understands its sacredness. Okay. And everyone respects its sacredness. And even you, if you were a person who maybe is Jewish, but maybe you don't, you know, want to go to the services all the time, or you're kind of like, meh, I'm over it. Even you, person, would understand if, um, if the, you know, something were to happen or someone were to, you know, do something to the Torah that wasn't allowed. Like you would notice it, you would understand um, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The gravity of that situation. Um, in, I don't really have any examples in my own brain, but one thing that I talk a lot about, like if we were there, because people often say like, come on, they're just wearing costumes. Like this is silly. But if you think of any religion, and again, we're not always going to find a Western connection to the Igbo people, but when we do, I'd like to highlight it. If you think about the Western religions, and I'm the most familiar with um, Christianity, but there are so many things that are done in a way that are theatrical. I don't really know how else to say it, but they're trying, you know, all of the sacraments are outward signs of an inward change, but the sacrament, the action is a representation of what's happening on the inside. So many of the actions that we do in our worship services may look kind of bizarre to an outside person, but they make a lot of sense to the believer and the believer finds them to be holy and sacred. Another thing I want to talk about is this idea that every religion, or I think, I think a lot of religions, even Western religions have this space where everyone knows that something is not like physically, what's the word I'm looking for possible, I guess, but they, they, their belief system like upholds something that perhaps science could disprove. And what I'm trying to say here is like, everyone knows that those are just guys behind the masks, right? But the ceremony is very important to them and the ancestral spirits are very holy to them. So nobody says anything, even though they know that it's Okonkwo. I guess the one thing that comes to mind in my mind is when we look at this act in um, of communion, specifically in the Catholic community, it's called transfiguration. And 
I think that's the right word, but now I'm thinking that might be a Harry Potter word. I think it's both, actually. I should Google it. I'm not going to Google it now. But anyway, there's this process by which when you get ready for communion in the Catholic Church and you're given communion, the priest has to do some stuff to the, the wine and the bread. And the, the difference between a Protestant religion and a Catholic religion, one of the many differences, is that if you go to a Protestant service, they'll say, like, hey, this is communion. Like, the bread represents the body and the, the wine represents the blood, but they just say that it's a symbol. But that's not the case in Catholicism. That's not the language that's used. The language you says, this is, right? Like, it's not a comparison. They say, this is the body of Christ. And that's a, that's a big deal. And um, I don't think that, I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. I'm trying to point out that all religions have these little moments where they do things that may seem really, I don't want to say extreme, but they just might seem really odd to an onlooker, but to the person who's practicing it, it's very uh, I don't, representative of their belief system. When we get to the agugu ceremony, oh, I got to read one really good quote. I hope I didn't lose it. That's really what's happening is we're seeing a very Igbo thing happening right in front of us. Okay. At this, okay, hold on. I got to read a quote from this chapter. At one point it says they're talking about, Oh, this is still on page 91 and it's Okonkwo and he's got his mask on and it says he looked terrible with a smoke raffia body, a huge wooden face painted white, except for the round hollow eyes and the charred teeth that were as big as a man's finger. So these masks are gigantic. And then it says on his head were two powerful horns. And that reminded me of some imagery that we got in Heart of Darkness. And just keep that in mind because we're going to come back to this question of how this compares to Heart of Darkness at the end of this podcast or at the end of this chapter. Oh, I mean, at the end of this. On your next reading, I'm getting to that question. Okay, let's move on to chapter 11. Ooh, one of your questions on your sheet was like, tell me how you felt when you read chapter 11. I know for me, when I read this chapter after going through chapter 7 with the Kemefuna, I thought she was going to kill Azima. I swear I did. And I was like, I cannot take these. I cannot take this if they're going to kill Azima. You, you know, the little girl is 10 years old. But, sorry, I had to get a sip of water. They don't. But let's talk about chapter 10. I mean, what did you make of it? What did you think of it? Okay, a couple things. You know the part I want to highlight. The mom, Akwefi, is so... You know, this is her only daughter. It has taken her a lifetime to have one daughter. She has gone through a tremendous amount of pain and suffering to have this daughter. And we all know that, like, Azima is everybody's favorite. Um, she's loved by her mother. She's adored by her dad, who adores no one. And then one night, the priestess, who is not herself, right? Like, she's occupied by the spirit. She comes and says, I want my daughter, Azima. And they're like, wait, what? So Azima hops on her back and this woman takes her all over and you think, oh my God, she's going to never bring her back. She's going to kill her. What's going to happen? Um, so Aquafi makes the decision that she's going to follow. And I love this chapter because I, I do think in part it stands in contrast to chapter seven. In chapter seven, you saw Okonkwo who said like, whatever the Oracle does, I will do, period. I don't care. And then in chapter 11, Aquafi's like, 
I can't not follow my daughter. Like her maternal instinct overrides everything about her belief system. And then I know I asked you guys this on your questions. And if you want to know what page it's on, it's on page 108. She said, she's waiting. Um, she's waiting outside the cave and it says, as she, hold on. I kind of want to read the whole thing. Let me go to page 107. She says, uh, Okay, I guess I got to start from here. As soon as the priestess stepped into this ring of the hills, her voice was not only doubled in strength, but was thrown back on all sides. It was indeed the shrine of a great god. Aquefi picked her way carefully and quietly. She was already beginning to doubt the, wisp the wisdom of her coming. Nothing would happen to Azima, she thought. And if anything happened to her, could she stop it? She would not dare to enter the underground caves. Her coming was quite useless, she thought. And then these things went through her mind, and she did not realize how close they were to the mouth of the cave. And so when the priestess with Azima on her back disappeared through a hole hardly big enough to pass a hen, Aquefi broke into a run as though to stop them. As she stood gazing into the circular darkness, which swallowed them, tears gushed from her eyes. Because she doesn't know what's going to happen in that cave. And she swore within her heart that if she heard Azima cry, she would rush into the cave to defend her against all the gods in the world. She would die with her. Woo! At that point for me, like I'm a mom and you're just like, yes, yes. Like there is no God. And I just, I think it's a, I think it's amazing. She's basically saying there is no God. There is no belief that will ever get between me and my daughter. And, and we, of course, of course, of course, of course. I think so many of us were so shocked when you saw Okonkwo in chapter seven, just to be like, Ah, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do because I'm a man. And he he kills a Kamefuna. It's just such an unnatural thing. Oh, sorry, guys. Um, okay. That's such an unnatural thing. And so for us to finally see a mom say, this is crazy. I'm, I would never let anything happen to my daughter. I don't care what the belief system is. And to me, that's a big part of, um, that's a big part of this, you know, this chapter in this moment. And then... When she, when she walks away, she realizes that Okonkwo is also waiting there because he was so worried. And again, like Okonkwo is a really horrible person <laughs> in a lot of ways, but he's also, he loves this daughter. He loves her and his love is bizarre and very oddly articulated, but it does exist. And I think that that's, an, and that's a hard thing to do as a writer is to give us a main character that we, we know that is so flawed in so many ways, but his love for his children, his child in this case, at least is very real. And, um, at the very end, it talks, she as a Kwefi talks about like when she first met Okonkwo and you know, you're kind of like, uh, okay, I guess, but you know, I don't really understand how she could be drawn to him, but Hey, that's just me. Um, so that was chapter 11. And I, I'm, I'm most intrigued as to what you thought while you were reading it. Okay. In chapter 12, we have the wedding. And there's a couple conversations here that are important. And one is on page 112 and 113, we have a conversation about the marketplace and the belief in the, quote, medicine that the marketplace uses. Um just to prepare you guys for what's going to happen. Like a lot of these people believe in things that you as the reader are going to be like, okay, yeah, uh, that's not actually true. And you, 
I'm not saying this to disagree with you, but you want to sort of like think about all the things that they believe that would be disproven immediately upon the arrival of people who did not believe in their religion. And then I'm going to tell you that that is about to happen in the book. So you just have to know kind of the things they think like, oh, the medicine is so powerful of the people in this village. Um, okay. So we have, um, the, we have the wedding and we have, you know, they're counting the, the pots of wine. How many bottles of wine are they, those jerks bringing? Um, and I do think that there are, you know, it's a wedding and I think it's beautiful how through all of time and space, there are people who, um, there are people who, you know, when two people come together to form a marriage, certain things have to happen and wine is one of them. So in our American tradition, you know, in some families, I guess the parents of the groom, like pay the bar tab or they pay for the rehearsal dinner or whatever. So I thought it was so funny that in this tradition, very similarly, the parents of the groom bring all the wine. So we have this wedding and it appears, appears to be a very happy and festive occasion. Um, you know, we got to slit the throats of a couple goats, but Hey, people got to eat. Right. And people bring, uh, bring all sorts of food and they sing and they dance. And then we have um, things like the cola nut and we have the married women wore their best cloths and the girls wore their red and black waist beads and anklets of brass. So we have these sort of um, different uh, decorative pieces that the women are wearing, which of course we were, we're not surprised to see. And all of this is again, trying to illustrate or highlight at least in my mind, and maybe you're maybe you have other things that you've observed in here, that this is a major tradition or custom of the Igbo people. So if you think about it, you know, we're 120 some pages into this book. We've seen a lot of things happen so far. And actually the last thing that we need is going to be at the beginning of um, chapter 13, and that's a that's a funeral. So I'm not going to tell you what happens in that chapter, but that's the last one. And again, it's interesting, right? Like we're learning all about this culture. One of my friends who also read this book said she read it in an anthropology class in college, which I thought was interesting, but it really is not just hopefully the study of another culture that is foreign to us, but hopefully we're thinking about all the things that we also go through um, in our own American culture. If you have um, a belief system uh, any belief system that you you practice or are a part of, I think it is interesting to consider all of your practices. And I'm not sure if you've ever had the opportunity to go observe someone else's belief system and action. Um, when I was in college, I took a Western religions class. And one thing that we had to do was we had to go to the service of a belief system outside of our own. And um, I went to an Oh, my, my older sister was at U of M at the time and her boyfriend, now husband is Jewish. And so he, I went to Ann Arbor one Sunday and we went to a Jewish Orthodox service. And I remember like, I, um, he and I had to sit on separate sides of this barrier and I, on my side of the barrier, I couldn't see the man. Um, I think he was singing. I'm not really sure. Anyway, just like all sorts of different observations. And that's a, that was a like you know it was tremendous. Everyone came back with all of their observations, and you just sort of want to think about those things. Like, what are the things that you do? What are the things that you've seen other people do? What do these things mean? Why are they important to us? Um, when do we 
change things? And that's going to be, be a big question that we're going to get to in just a little bit here is when do we, when do we say for any religion, you know what, it really shouldn't be done this way because that really kind of like violates the freedom or that kind of restricts these people. Or, you know, if you're a person who's reading this book with an eye toward the way women are treated, like in the Agugu ceremony, they talk about this husband and he's so terrible. And the, the, in, the, the parents of the woman are like, you know, we want to protect her. And then the Agugu ultimately say like, Oh, give your daughter back to this horrible guy. And all of the master Agugu, of course are men. So if you were to read this book through the eye of, you know, patriarchy, there's a million different examples of how women are suppressed or restricted just so the men can stay in this position of extreme power. And that is not unique to the evil people, as I'm sure we're all aware. Overall, 10, 11, and 12 continue to show us more traditions and customs of the evil people. If you're waiting or you're sort of like, hey, hello, what's going to happen next? Let's get some action. That's chapter 13. So a lot is going to happen in your next reading. But I think some of you might be ready for that. Turn in your questions by Tuesday at midnight. And I'll be back on Wednesday night. Remember, podcasts are going to be only Mondays and Wednesdays now. Okay? I hope you guys are doing well. Thank you so much for listening.